Sorry, loving one of you. This is Digging Through with Jesse Alvarez. Hello. Welcome back. It's summertime. It's hot. It's humid. The days are longer. But we're here and we're living and we're being as productive as we can be. Despite the forces trying to keep us down, we are forging ahead and living and, and, and not only living, but creating stuff and putting stuff out there. And hopefully some of this stuff is fighting the existing system. I really, truly hope so. I'm trying the best I can. It's, it's, it's a tough one. We are, um, in crisis mode. Uh, there is a constant barrage of bad news every day and a feeling of helplessness which we have to resist and we have to just um, keep our focus going. We have to keep looking for opportunities to help others. We are going to survive this, this moment in time. So um, here's to surviving it. I've been uh, putting together this uh, piece that I did with uh, Paul Beckman. Paul is a writer He's based out of Connecticut and he's, um, he's written a lot of flash fiction that you'll find in many different places on the interwebs and published in print. And he is a gracious guy. Um, just a classy guy. He hosts a reading series at KGB called the F bomb reading series. And it takes place on the first Friday of every month. It is a great experience. So if you're ever in town and want to listen to some people read great stuff, head on down to the KGB bar uh, on East 4th Street. Go to the top floor and you're going to be transported to a different time and place and you're going to enjoy some great literature. So do do that if you have a chance. This is Paul Beckman and He's going to be uh, reading some stories, and then you're going to hear me and him talking. We sat down together at Great Jones Cafe, which is located on Great Jones Street, and that's downtown. Um, I guess, I don't know, like, I never know what these neighborhoods are. I think it's technically NoHo, which is north of Houston. Oh, real estate agents kill me. Anyway, so that's where we met, and it's a great little restaurant. If you're ever in that neighborhood, I recommend it. They've got great Cajun food. they got hush puppies and corn on the cob and amazing cornbread. And they also make a mean house margarita. They've got great beer. And it's just a really cool little place. Uh, if you're ever in the hood, do check them out. They were so nice to us that day. We met up at five, which is on the early side. Um, and I did that on purpose because I knew the restaurant was going to be less busy at that time. But um, we met up and we sat there and we were just nursing our drinks. And the wait staff, they were so nice to us. And they let us do our interview for you know, the next hour or so. And, um, you know, it was great because it added to, uh, it, I think it made Paul more comfortable to be in that sort of setup. And it also made me more comfortable because it really felt like we were just friends having, a, you know, sharing a, a drink together. 
So I hope you enjoy this interview. Um, here is Paul Beckman. Bad man. I'm running away from the bad man. He's threatened my knees and eyes, and it's all over a misunderstanding. His dog followed me. I didn't dognap him. I'm out of shape, and I stop and look for a place to hide and spot an alley. I sit on a garbage can, laying on its side, trying to catch my breath, but the smell of garbage is overpowering. Suddenly, a cab slows down for a yellow traffic light, and I run out to the street and lift my hand. The driver nods me over, and I heft myself up after I open the door. I freeze. Badman is sitting on the far side and reaches over, grabs my shirt, and pulls me into the cab with him. Why are you chasing me, I ask, pretending I don't know. He pulls me closer. We're staring at each other, and he coughs in my face, and his putrid garlic cigar and anchovy breath almost knocks me out. He coughs again and starts laughing and lets me go, and I fall out of the cab just as it starts to move through the green light. I roll over and over and am stopped by the curb. I get up from the road and run across the street. I sneak a peek and see the cab continue on. I hobble over to the dog bowl in front of a dress shop, kneel down and wash my face and neck with the dog water, and feel good about replacing bad man's smell with dog odor. Years later, enough time has passed so I don't think about bad man anymore, and I'm in my I-cover-chocolate-everything kiosk, dipping peep bunnies into the milk chocolate where I hear you got enough chocolate to dip these? I look up, and it's him, large and lit stogie in the corner of his mouth, and he's holding out a wooden fruit crate filled with anchovies and garlic cloves. I knock over the drying peeps getting out the door and start running. I hear f heavy footsteps behind me and trip over a schnauzer and land on my head. The last thing I remember is bad man kneeling by me. I smell his once familiar deadly odor wafting over me as he asks if I can have his order ready by the weekend. Anytime I'm in New York, I'm fine. How do you get here? Do you like drive in or? I take a train. Okay. And then I take a subway. I guess how far in Connecticut are you? Um, it takes me a half hour to drive to the train station. Oh, wow. Okay. And then an hour and a half to get to the city. Yeah. And then whatever it takes to, wherever the subway decides to stop. Right. It doesn't always stop at the same place. <laughs> no, I mean, for, for a year I would get off at Astor Place, and so they didn't go to Astor, so I got off at 14th and walked. Oh, I see, okay. Yeah, there's a lot of maintenance and all that kind of stuff happening. Yeah, That's, I don't mind. I, no? I bring my camera and I just uh, 
two pictures. Oh, that's fun. So you just take the subway pictures. I like doing those too. I do that. <laughs> do you like taking photographs of people or, or the actual stations? Cause I'm a street shooter. A street shooter. Yeah. Amongst other things. Yeah. So um, you're here in the city because you're actually going to do your F-bomb leading soon. Yep. Tonight. Tonight. So you've been doing these now for a little bit. We're coming up on two years. Oh, wow. Um, and they're usually the first Friday of the month? Yep. Okay. At KGB Bar in East Village? Yeah, the Red Room. The Red Room, which is the top floor, the newly renovated top floor. Yeah, that's the one. It's jazzy up there. It is. <laughs> I enjoy the mic very much. It's that old-fashioned, you know, mic. Yeah. How did you get into this reading business? I was invited to um, the F-Bomb Denver okay. by uh, Nancy Stolman. Mm -hmm. It's one of her programs. Uh, it was a program started by her. And um, I've never been to Denver. So I went down for... She invited Robert Vaughn and me to be the headliners. Oh, nice. And then people started showing up. Kathy Fish started, came, and then um, Meg Tweet came, and just one person after another, and Sally Reno. And Do you actually choose pieces that sort of flow into each other for those full 15 minutes, or are you just reading the ones that you like the best? I invite the people to read, or they write me and ask if they can read. Um, some offer to send me their work to read, and I tell them it's not necessary. Um, and I have no idea what's going to come out. Oh, so... I don't want to know. Okay. You want to find out whether you like it or not when you read it up on stage. When they read it. That's interesting. Because yeah. something on, written on the page is sometimes very different than on stage. Right. Right? Is it, is it the performance that you like when you, when you have that surprise? Or, or just the words? I like the creativity. There's a um, young man reading tonight, um, the second time, his name is Brian Zimler. Mm -hmm. um, he blew me away the first time he read. So um, I'm anxious to hear him again. Very creative, very bright. Okay. There's always um, an eclectic group of readers at the F-Clubs. Yes, there is. Right? Uh, different subject matter, different styles of writing. Sometimes there's poets, sometimes it's just fiction. Yeah, it wasn't going to be poets. I wasn't going to do that. Yeah. And then um, I said, okay, prose poetry. <laughs> and then some people wanted to do poetry. And, you know, I'm, so I said, fine. I mean, nice people if, if it was good they could come back if it wasn't so good I would not have room <laughs> right. 
which is tough. Yeah. Um, and you're a writer as well, and you listen to all these writers and sometimes poets read. Have you found a certain influence from that? Like, do you feel inspired or? Maybe want to try something new because you heard someone do something creative. Um. Yeah. Yeah. Um. I don't want to emulate them. I want to um, write a story that encompasses the feeling I get when listening to them. So it, there's no way it's going to be the same story. But I try to um, steal the feeling. Mm -hmm. That depth yes. that someone gets to sometimes. Usually by accident, by the way, right? I'll, you know what? I'll take it anyway. <laughs> I mean, I find that it's for me usually by accident. It's not planned. Nothing I write is planned, um, except the first word. Yeah, the first word. So that you just you have this idea with this one word, and then you start writing. Is that what you mean? Yeah. Really. I didn't know what a prompt was. Um, until I went to. Um, I think Bennington for my MFA, but I would sit down on my computer or typewriter, whichever was working at the time, and if I was staring at a blank page too long, I would just get up and grab a book and flip through the book until one word caught my eye, and then I'd sit down and write that word and then write a story from that word. So it's it's very rare for me to know where its story is going, and it's even rarer for me to know how it's going to end. But you you have a lot of family stories in, in a lot of your questions. I do have a lot of family <laughs> stories. So which um, has not always pleased my family. <laughs> right, <laughs> which is what happens. But with the family story, there's obviously uh, some sort of spark of possibly a memory or... Um, you know, there's a memory and there's a, either a habit or a, something they do that they don't even know they're doing, that I can um, write down. I, I, I once made the mistake of inviting my cousins to a reading, and my uncle to a reading that I did when I, my first book came out. And it was a story about um, an aunt who didn't talk to her other the family didn't talk but two sisters met they talked and she was invited to her sister's house 
to have a cup of coffee. And um, it was black coffee. She didn't want anything in it. So after the story, after I finished reading, all the cousins went up to my uncle, who had seven sisters in him, and said, which one of your sisters drank their coffee black? And he said, all of them. So that killed the Sherlock Holmes in them. But no story is carried through as a true story. Um, I will, I always say that I will stop writing about family if I ever run into a functional family. Uh, that's how I feel about it. Yeah. I will, um, that will outlive me. Honey and darling, I hear them whispering to each other over dinner. My dining area backs to theirs, and for some reason, in one small section of the wall, I can hear everything. I found that by accident with one of the previous tenants. Perhaps when the building was built, the insulation was left out, or the builders did something intentionally to cause this. It only works one way, them to me. I'm sure of that, and I would bet my life on it after living here through four other tenants. He calls her honey, and she calls him darling and their mailbox name slot is blank. They are cautious and only talk to each other in whispers. Obviously, they must know that the walls in the building are thin, but they can't know how thin in this one spot. I might as well be in the room with them. I keep my table next to the wall and eat my dinner when they have theirs, listening to them share their day's experiences and more. I heard Honey tell Darling about a company that her company was about to buy, so I bought stock and made several thousand dollars. She's the boss's secretary. Another time she told them about a stock that was about to tank, and I shorted it and made even more. There have been others, and I don't go crazy on these tips because I'm not greedy and don't want to bring suspicion down on my head. Besides, they keep coming. Darling is a gangster. He lends money, breaks legs, pulls heists, and worse. He tells Honey everything. I hope to write a gangster book one of these days, so I keep my laptop on the table during dinner. At times, I'm so busy listening and writing, my meals get cold. At dinner this evening, I listened as Darling said that he had to leave for a bit and take care of a problem. I have to squash a bug, he said, but I won't be long. And I heard him push his chair back and walk to the door. I heard the squeak of it opening. I heard a knock on my door. And there's, 
that's a very there's a rich tradition for these types of stories. So were there writers that you were particularly uh, gravitating towards when you were thinking of writing before you could actually start writing your own stories? Yeah. Yeah. Um I love Philip Roth. Um I liked um Saul Bellow. Um, I read a lot of Isaac Babel who didn't write family stories. Um, I read a lot of Updike. Uh, I just always read. And, and I would read short stories more than novels. Um, it was my escape. Um, when I was doing a little research on you, I, I read that you have these Bridgeport projects, and I haven't read any of these, so do you want to talk a little bit about the project stories? Yeah, this is, um, I don't usually talk about growing up in the projects, and so this was a leap of faith to write about them. Um, they were not happy times. Um, they were um, being um, either one of or the only Jew in the projects was a, an interesting, which is a terrible word, it was a precarious life. And um, so you're talking about you were like basically the only white kid in the projects? No. Here's the thing. I had a story, a project story turned down by a, a, a very good magazine. And um, the editor wrote me and said, I don't like this. You shouldn't be writing about this kind of stuff. That's not... Um, it's not how the world is. And I, I mean, he, he really got on my case. Yeah. So I wrote him back. And not a, not a confrontational. I said, I'm writing about the projects in the 50s. In the 50s, there were more white people in the projects. And then there were black people, and then there were Puerto Ricans. I said, um, As a group, we got along fine. And black people were called colored people. Um, Jews were called a lot of things. Um, you know, I would get in a lot of fights. Um, so he wrote me back and he said, now I understand. He said, that's very interesting. I still don't want your story. And um, it's in my book. Is this your latest book? I believe so. Okay. Um, I think I have three or four project stories in there. Okay. And the um, publisher, um, when he read the, the manuscript I sent him, asked me to write a, more stories, more project stories, 
and he'd like to do a whole book on that. Mm -hmm. Great. Yeah, I don't know if I can handle the pain. <laughs> I grew up believing, and I have not changed my belief that people are people. I, I never had a um, an issue with someone because of their color. I had an issue with people who had an issue with my religion, and that was common. Because, um, I mean, probably from the first day there, there was um, there were the projects that I was in. There was the railroad tracks, the turnpike, and then the, a few stores. And one of them was a uh, an everything store, some toys, some drinks and stuff, and they would say, let's go to the Jews and get a soda. And the first time I heard that, I, I attacked the person. I mean, they've been calling this guy the Jew for historically ever. I went to school with his grandson. His father and his son owned the liquor store next to him. But I just didn't want to hear it. And so I got in a lot of fights and won very few, if any. I, I got the stuffing kicked out of me on a regular basis. <laughs> yeah. But after a while, they decided it was, I wasn't going to stop. And um, most of them did, unless they wanted to get me pissed. You had to stand your ground and defend, basically. Take the offense. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. But when we went to play ball, which was every day, whether it was basketball or uh, scoop ball or whipple ball, whatever. We came together. There was no, no race-baiting. Yeah. It just didn't exist. This is what I mean. It's this, it's this external pressure pushing the reaction from everybody, and you act on it. And then you have, then you're just kids, and you know, you're all just kids. You'll play. You'll probably went to school together. Probably sat the ones down. that didn't quit, yeah. <laughs> you probably sat down and read out loud together. You know, there are these moments where I think these different groups of people come together. Sometimes they're forced to, but you know. We came together for sports or hanging out. It was just a matter of just starting to write some of this stuff down. Mm -hmm. And it and it actually flowed pretty easily. Um, Is there anything that's coming out surprising of those stories? Yeah, there's, there's things that remind me of things that happened. I once was walking home and I saw my two neighbors, one from each side, walk up to each other and like they were gonna talk and one punched the other in the face. And I'd never seen a face get pushed in like that. It was 
I didn't know about instant replays back then, but it stayed in my mind. Um, and the guy didn't fall, he shook it up and kept walking. Um, so I don't know what their problem was, but fighting was a way of life. Um, so that violence, looking back now, you realize how horrible Unlike my brothers who accepted where we lived and not having a father, I was always pissed. <laughs> okay. You had the chip on your shoulder? <laughs> I had a chip big enough for the three of us. Yeah. So, so they were trying to make the best of things that you were sort of like, this, this is fucked up. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I... So I hung with a different crowd. I was a, a numbers runner. Um, I worked as a fence. Um, I was I was never afraid to do something a little illegal. I, I worked in a grocery store for a couple of years, and you know. I would walk out with a pork chop in each shoe. <laughs> right, right. Um, to bring home. Yeah. Well, you gotta eat a pork chop. <laughs> well, you know, but sometimes it was something else. Like beer or something? No, no, this just for food for the family. We did, we did not have a lot of food. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, if there was no such thing as casseroles, my mother would have invented, you know, take two hot dogs, cut them into pieces, and throw them in two cans of beans, and you got a meal for four people. I haven't eaten a casserole since I left. <laughs> right. Yeah. How did you leave? I joined the Air Force. Oh, you joined the Air Force. So you were a pilot. Pardon me? You were a pilot? I was an air traffic controller. Yeah. And was this during the Vietnam War? Yes. Oh, wow. Okay. So, okay, so you went into the Air Force and then you did a bunch of other stuff and somehow you landed in this writer world. I did. <laughs> And what, what, why, 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 why are you writing? I started thinking about writing. And I would think I would have an idea and I'd write it on a piece of paper. At the time I was, I was working as a controller and I also opened my own real estate office. And so I would take these pieces of paper and throw them in a cigar box. And then one day the cigar box was filled. And I decided that I would either write a story or throw them away. And so I borrowed a... Um, a beach house 
went out on the wharf with a bottle of wine and my typewriter and um, within an hour I had my first story written and I sent it out and I got a note back the editor's name was Napoleon something or other. Yeah. And, and I remember it now, because then it didn't, that he kept the rights to the stories. But anyway, he wrote me back and he said, if you get rid of the first paragraph, I'll take your story. And I said, who is this man to tell me what my story should be? So I said no. And it took me about eight years to sell that story without the first paragraph. <laughs> Did you? Did you finally sell it? Pardon me? Did you finally sell it? Oh, yeah. Without that first paragraph? Yeah, the first paragraph had no business being in there. <laughs> so he was right. Napoleon was right. Oh, Napoleon was right. Yeah. You know, I think um, everybody has a bad editor story if you've been writing for a little bit. I have many. Um, but there are other, other editors who are actually um, extremely careful about what they tell writers about, you know, what to cut out. Because we understand, especially if you're also a writer, you understand how sensitive and how precious some people feel about their work. And you don't want to demean them or make them feel bad. Or, you, know, you want to encourage them, not destroy them, right? That's how it should be, yes. I mean, that's how I edit. But it's, it's terrifying to edit other people's stories. It is, it really is. And I think you should be terrified because it is someone else's creative output. I sent the story out last week. And the next day, it got an acceptance. And um, I did not go into Submittable to see if I had submitted it more than once. I, I had, which I should do, because I've gotten in, in binds for the, and, um, but the next day, the very next day, I get a note from an editor rejecting the story and saying to me, you can write better than this. So subjective. Yeah. And the first guy said, boy, do I love this, Paul. You know, it's, this is wonderful. And, I mean, it, it really does, some stories speak to some people, you know, they completely crash and burn with others. Yeah. I actually have never written a letter to an editor except to say thank you. Um, no matter, and I've got my share of horrid letters, um, horrid rejections. Um, I'll write nasty rejections. I've controlled myself. I've never written back. Good. Um, 
there's plenty of other fish in the sea. Yeah, but I know people who want to write back, and I and say it's it's a losing proposition to do that. Yeah, yeah, it's a very small community, and word does get out, and uh, you have to be very careful who you're writing back to. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know if you've noticed now that you've, you've been doing the F-bomb and you've been publishing books, you see the same people at different places, but it's the same group of people. It's a small world. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Stephen writes that it's a small world, but I wouldn't want to paint it. <laughs> exactly. was Paul Beckman talking to me at the Great Jones Cafe. Paul has a book out called Kiss Kiss, which is published by Truth Serum. Do check his book out. It is available on Amazon, of course, and elsewhere. Please uh, check us out on iTunes, SoundCloud, uh, we would love to hear back from you. Uh, a five-star review is always welcomed. It gives us a little push, and it brings us to the uh, attention of other people who may be interested in listening to our show. I just want to end this by saying, have fun out there, people. Enjoy the summer. And flowers. <laughs>